Tonight I want to talk about beating envy. There is so much envy in America. How many of you have noticed that? People are very, very envious. People are very concerned with other people. And it's really a sad thing because the kids are the ones that are really being hurt as a result of it. We're, we are seeing an epidemic increase of young kids committing suicide as a result of deep depression. And the experts are telling us uh, that it is an envying of all the false lives, living the dream on you know Facebook and the internet, how you know pe- people may have this this really unhappy life, but boy, if you look on Facebook, they're you know they're on vacation, they've got you know the new this, and they, and they're all happy campers, but in reality, a lot of times that's not true. In other words, they're, they're putting out a false image of what their everyday life is, and some kid who doesn't know any better. How many of you know kids are naive? You know, and and it's like, and and kids, you know, they've lived for 14, 16, 18 years. And they've been, you know, going through a hard time, and maybe they weren't popular at school. Maybe they don't get good grades. Maybe they're not athletic. Maybe they look on Facebook, and all their friends get to do things, and they have a lot more money, and they have you know, this, and they have that, and so they've lived, you know, their high school years, their junior high, you know, three or four years have been pretty miserable, and that's just like their whole life, and they're just tired of it all, but see, they haven't lived 60 years or 50 years and been through ups and downs and bad times and good times, seasons where people like it, people do, and and good, you know, finances, bad finances, and they don't have the big picture in their little world. You know, they've only lived a short time. And so if that short time has been bad, that's their whole life. And they get a, a warped sense. They don't have a sense. And it's, it's kind of a depression of, that comes from, you know, an unhealthy thing. And I call it social media voyeurism or groupieism, where they're always looking at everybody else's life and ignoring their own. And wondering why their own life isn't very good and everybody else's life seems to be so good. That could only bring you to misery. And, and, it, and, and, it's, and it's called envy in the Bible. And it's an absolutely sinful, wicked lifestyle that the Bible commands you not to do. Period. End of, end of conversation. God tells us not to envy. That it's a very wicked thing. And that you are not your own. You're bought with a price. Can I get an Amen. So you don't have any business comparing your life with their life because you're not the author of life. And if you think you should have had more or, or that, then, then you must think that God made a mistake and you must be thinking that God's doing something wrong instead of just paying you know, attention to your own life and doing that. So kids really get messed up with this. And so what I want to talk today is how do we beat this envy thing, if not for ourselves, keeping an eye on our kids that they don't get into that because that's really a wicked uh, that, that's really a toxic pit to go down into, is looking at other people and comparing yourself to others. So I believe this, that we need to understand that it's the call the, to know the hope of our calling. So the title of my message tonight is Beat Envy, Know the Hope of Your Calling. Turn to, turn to your neighbor and say, your calling. Because everybody's called to do something in life. Everybody's called to be somebody to do certain things and to have a thing that God will hold us accountable for at the end of our life when we stand before him on judgment day. He's not going to ask if you fulfilled, uh, you know, handsome Freddie's, you know, call on his life or beautiful Betty's call on her life that, that, you, that you're trying to be them instead of yourself. And so you never did your call. You never found out what your, uh, you know, gifting was. You never found out what God's plans for you were because you were too busy trying to be like, uh, some knucklehead that's probably even more unhappy than you uh, that you saw on Facebook or some crazy thing like that, or your kids are doing that. But I'll tell you what, it's, it's a wicked thing, and it's, it's very important that we understand that our call, who we are, God, what God wants to make us. And how many of you know God likes to choose the weak things of the world, and he chooses the despised things of the world? And so I, I, our inability is God's showcase of ability, our inability is God's showcase of his ability through us. And so we should say, you know, what it says in Isaiah, it says in three different places that he's going to give me double for my trouble. 
If you have trouble, if you have difficulty, if you're not everything that you'd like yourself to be, if you're not, you know, the person of your dreams, uh, just know this, that God wants to exalt you. Turn to Psalms 113, 7 through 9. I, li- I love this scripture. It says, he raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill, that he may set him with princes, even the princes of his people. He maketh the barren woman to keep house, and that implies having children, and to be a joyful mother of children, praise ye the Lord. And of course, a barren woman was a despised person in that ancient culture. They were considered like cursed or something's really wrong with you. You can't have kids. You're of no value. And so you just got to remember that. It's very different than today. So God wants to take your inability and make it his uh, showcased ability through you. And I believe this, that your calling reveals who you are, what you are called to do, your abilities, and even your motivation and the rewards that God has for you. All your days are written in a book, it says in the book of Psalms. And it says he calls and he gives us directions for our lives. Turn with me to Jeremiah, and we're going to look at, and we all know this scripture really well. It's about Jeremiah and the call uh, that is on his life, how God knew him before he was in his mother's womb. But this applies to every person. It isn't, it isn't like Jeremiah is unique to the human race and nobody else has this. Everyone has this type of thing. It may not be to ministry. It may be to uh, medicine. It may be uh, to be an engineer. It may be to be in sales and business. It may be uh, to do some type of job. But God has a plan for us. And he wants us to understand uh, that that plan Uh, that he has it for good or not evil. Look at what it says, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. That's an amazing thing. God can't have a new thought. Because that means there's something he doesn't know, but he's um, he's all-knowing. God doesn't have a new thought. God knew everything about you in advance. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. Sanctified means to be set aside for something. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not that I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee. Whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. He just wants cooperation. Verse 8. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. God will grace you for what you need to do. How many of you believe the gifts and the callings are without repentance? They're irrevocable. And the gift is what enables you to do the calling. And everyone is called, therefore everyone is gifted to do that call. And he touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have this day set thee over nations and over kingdoms to root out and pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build, and to plant. So God knows what he has, and he wants us. And there's seasons of tent making. There's seasons of intervals in between. We've all been there. We we lived with uh, Julie's mother and father. Uh, How many have ever had to live with your mother and father-in-law? We lived seven months in Julie's parents. Our bedroom was right next to theirs for seven months. It was a good experience. And, you know, she has the most lovely parents. That They were the easiest people in the world to live with. Thank God. How many know not everybody's in-laws are like that? You know, in ministry, you don't just go land. At, you know, you got to go through a candidating process, and there's just a lot to it. Taking on a pastorate, and that's before we came here, and so there was a lot of things to that. And, you know, our calling is what gives us hope. See, I had the hope, and I knew that I was called. I knew that there was a church coming up, and I knew because God spoke to me, and I knew that this church was going to come open, and I knew that we were going to be the pastors of this church. And so it was, it was very supernatural. But if you don't have a hope anchored in you, life can be really rough. And we can know the hope of our calling. Turn with me to Ephesians, the chapter Uh, the first chapter, verses 16 through 18. And the Bible talks about a hope that is attached to his call on our life. That there is actually a hope that is a result or attached to or 
in some way involved with our calling. That when you know, you know, I can remember what it was like when I was at University of Northern Iowa. The, the, the weeks and months before I got saved, I was thoroughly depressed. I thought, everybody I know has got a major. They're going to college. They know where they're going. They know what they want to do with their life. I've, I've been a business major. I've been a, a Parks and Recs major. I've been a teaching major. I, I tried them all. Didn't like any of them. And I thought, what am I, what are I anyway? And, and I'm trying to figure out what am I supposed to do with my life? Literally, if you don't think you have a purpose, you, you, you don't want to live. And I thought, what is my purpose? And, and until I got saved, I went from being pretty depressed about that, pretty unhappy about that, to then suddenly having joy and realizing that my call gives me a purpose and it gives me equipment and it gives me a reward to shoot for. Somebody say amen. See, when we begin to understand our calling, life changes dramatically. But in Ephesians, Paul prayed this. We're going to look at Paul's prayer. We're going to begin there in chapter 1, verse 16. It says, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. You need wisdom and you need revelation in your lives, in the knowledge of him. That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. We can walk around in darkness if we're not careful. It says, if, you know, if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the glorious light of the gospel of Christ, who's the image of God, should shine unto them. The devil is a mind blinder. He wants, to, he wants to keep you from knowing. The eyes of your understanding being lightened that you may know, that ye may know, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling. Now, there's a hope attached to our calling. And I don't envy other people because I know who I am, I know where I'm going, and I know that I'm pleasing God. I don't have to look like somebody to be happy about myself. I don't have to attain a certain uh, income to be happy about myself. I don't have to have a certain size church to be happy about myself. I don't, I don't have those insecurities. Now, sure, we want to grow the church because God wants more people saved. And, and we want to have more income because we can help more people. But if I don't, I don't go deep inside myself and go into this deep shell and think there's something wrong with me or I feel lesser than somebody else. Or some... How many of you know people like that? There are people that are all over themselves all the time. And they just can't get over themselves or they can't get over what's wrong with themselves because they are stuck on self. But if you know that you're in God's will and you're doing what you know to do, there's, there's a great relief in knowing the hope of your calling because see what I do has eternal rewards I, I, I don't have this small I, I don't have this micro comprehension I have a macro comprehension of my life and eternity and where what I'm doing fits into that and you should too and you won't be happy until you do and so you need to know the hope of your calling your divine eternal God rewarding one day before almighty God on the great right throne of of judgment, uh, the judgment seat of Christ calling that you'll answer for someday. That's the only way that you'll be foolproof, happy in life. Somebody say amen. So we, we, there's a certain hope to our calling. There's not a hope that at the end of my life I have enough money to leave it to my kids. That's going to happen. I've, I've made plans for that. But, but we're, what we're talking about is this, that when I stand in eternity... And God hands out, you know, some will be over 10 cities and some will rule and reign with him. And some uh, will just barely make it in and be at the very bottom of the pecking order. And, and some will be very highly exalted with him, the Bible says. And some will go to hell. That I, I, I know to some degree where I'm going to stand because I know what I've put into this. And I know that I have followed the calling and there's a great hope in the end of it. See, I couldn't. I, I, can't, I can't get by with just, you know, 
temporal, but we've got to be thinking, all of us, on eternal things. So we have a hope that is, uh, it, it, it will turn away envy in your life. It, it'll make you more setting your eyes on the, on the prize and forgetting those things. And, and it takes away all, all the comparison. Set, 2 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us it's very unhealthy to compare ourselves with others. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 10. Paul talks about those who compare themselves to themselves are not wise. And you know, almost everything in marketing does that today. How many of you notice marketing is a constant comparison of you against some, you know, idolatrous measure that the marketing world has come up with? And... And you can only get miserable if you are a big enough sucker to buy into that stuff. There's only misery for you. Uh, too bad. That's why it you know, stinks to be you if, you if you live your life that way. Because you've bought into a lie from the pit of hell. But look at, look at 2 Corinthians 10, 12. All right, it says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. You know, if you compare yourself to somebody that you think is inferior, then you're arrogant, and that's narcissistic. If you compare yourself to somebody that you think is superior, you're making yourself miserable, and you're, and you're going to have an inferiority complex. So that's why the Bible says don't even go there. That, that's, a, that's a twisted way of thinking to begin with. But we will not boast of things without our measure. Do you know that you have a measure of what God's going to expect from you? Some people are one talent, some people are three talent, some people are five talent. Then he talks about a measure and he talks about a sphere. Some people were called to be prophets to uh, cities. Some were be called to be prophets to entire nations. How many of you there's major and minor prophets in the Bible? How many of you know there's one, three, and five talent people? There's different, there's different callings on people's life and one is not better than the other, they're just different. And so when you understand that, being a major prophet, a minor prophet, minor doesn't mean minor in importance or significance. It just means that they were called to a different locale, a smaller locale. So let's keep on reading. But we will not boast of things without our measure. But according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. So Paul is talking about the measure here is the parameters of his ministry. For we reach not ourselves beyond our measure as though we reach not unto you. <clears throat> For we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things without our measure, that is, or other men's labors, but having hope. When your faith is increased, that ye shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly. So, we, you know, it says to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand. So Paul is talking about I'm not going over here and trying to be this and that. You know, some people, I think, so compromise for numbers or for whatever that the people are really suffering, but the ego of the leader is really gloating. And so sometimes we shouldn't go beyond certain measures and do things because God really has not ordained that. And some people don't, don't understand that uh, when we compare, we, we will always be going with one of some ship. Turn with me to John 21 and 18. Peter had a little session uh, with Jesus where him and John got into comparison. You know, the, how many of the disciples weren't perfect? How many of you know, some of them want to know which were going to sit on his right hand in heaven? And, you know, there, there's a lot of folks like that, and, and they, they, were, they were immature. How many of you know the disciples are all about 18 years old? They show them looking like old men with beards. They might have been close to 30 at the oldest, but most of them were like 18, 20. They were, they were like college-age students which makes perfect sense that Jesus would choose uh, that age group. But look what it says over here in John 21 and 18. You have this really strange conversation going on. With Jesus is there and John is there and Peter's there. And we're going to pick it up there in verse 18, and it says this, Verily, verily, I send thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither and thou wouldest. But then thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. Now that, you first read that, you, you're like, what on earth are you talking about? It's like, what, what is he, what, what's going to happen to Peter? How, how many of you know that Jesus had a word of wisdom 
concerning Peter's crucifixion. How many know Peter was crucified upside down? Jesus is telling him in advance how his end is going to be. He says, you'll stretch forth your hands. That is a euphemism for crucifixion, putting their hands out. Another shall gird thee. That means they'll put him, dress him in a loincloth, just like they did Jesus, which they did. All this came to pass, if you know history and the church fathers and the historical records. And they'll take you where you don't want to go, which is the site of the cross. And then you'll be crucified. It doesn't say that, but he was crucified upside down. And it said it would be a death that would glorify God. Peter sees John there, and look at verse 20, and he says, Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now look at what book of the Bible are we in? Only the book of John. Only John calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. Do you suppose there was a little competition going on there? A little comparison. He's the only one that calls himself that. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved, following. And notice how he, he puts it in the third person. <laughs> interesting. John was an, must have been an interesting guy. Whom Jesus loved, following, which also he leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Wow. So... John is leaning up against Jesus' chest when Jesus is telling Peter how he's going to die. He's going to be crucified. How many think, well, okay. Here's the disciple that Jesus loves, leaning up on his chest, wondering who's, who's going to betray him. And I'm, if you're Peter, you're thinking, I'm going to be crucified. They're going to take me where I don't want to go. They're going to put my hands where I don't want them to be, and they're going to do to me what I don't really want to have happen. And the disciple whom Jesus loved is over there leaning on his chest. What about him? What does he get? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? And Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow me. Now, let's just break that down into modern vernacular. Peter's saying, Okay, so I'm going to get, I'm going to, get to be crucified for you. What's John going to get, get in his end for you? For you? And, and, and Jesus says, If I want to, I'll, I'll make him live till I come back. So what is it to you anyway? What are you getting your nose out of joint worrying about this for? Just follow me, Peter. See, Jesus quickly rebuked Peter fiercely for comparison. Trying to see, well, well you know, this beside, disciple that's leaning on your chest over here and I get to be crucified. Well, what about him? What is, what's going to happen with him? You know, Jesus was pretty tough on Peter. And he kind of wasn't real nice about the way he said that. He says, what is that to you? That, that's, see, today we'd say, what of it? So what? Is that in your business? You know, we, we'd probably say something like that. See, turn with me now to James. I'll tell you why. Because Jesus knew how wicked comparison is. Comparison is a very, very wicked thing. James 3, verses 14 through 18. We'll begin there in 14. But if you have better envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth, excuse me, not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. For where envying and where there's envy, there's always strife, whether it's outward or inward. Whether it's outward or inward, there will always be strife. Where there's envy, Envying and strife, there is confusion and every evil work. That's because envy is at the root of almost all sin. Almost every evil work. And we're going to prove that here in a minute. But look what that says. Envy and strife, every evil work. 
Proverbs 13.10 says, Only by pride cometh contention. Only by pride. This wisdom is devilish. James goes on and says, and, and if you keep on just following that line, right, right after that, there's no chapter distinctions in the, in the original Greek, but look what it says in James 4, 1 and 2. And it says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, and ye cannot obtain. You fight and you war, and ye have not, because ye ask not. And it talks about how all these things start creating dissension and problems in their lives. James 4, you know, it says you ask amiss, and that's why you don't get your prayers answered, because you want to consume it on your loss. And, and he just goes on with a lot of the things uh, that are wrong with that and all the different things uh, that happen. So I'm going to go, and I'm going to look, and I'm going to walk through that again, that uh, seven, uh, verses 14 through 17. We'll begin in verse 15. It descendeth not from above. How many of you know every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above, in whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning? This type of wisdom comes from hell. This comes from fallen beings who took on the nature of Lucifer. And it says, it's earthly. It's of this world. In Colossians 2.8 it says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men and after the rudiments of this world and not after Christ, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head over all principality and power. You see, the elemental things of this world, the, the earthly, the sensual, talks about that it's sensual, tells us not to walk by sight but by faith. Look not to the seen, but the unseen. So this, there, there is a wisdom that is not from God, but from below. There is a wisdom that is of this world, and it works in a fallen world system. How many of you know envy works to your advantage when you're trying to sell something in a very worldly, worldly system? How many of you know you can manipulate people through envy? How many of you know envy for what it is used for in a fallen, wicked context, really does work. There is a wisdom to it, but it's a wicked wisdom. Can I get an amen? And how many of you know that the type of wisdom that's from above comes through the Holy Spirit is internal? It's the spirit of wisdom and revelation, and it's internal, and it's spiritual, and it's in the born-again spirit. But this type of wisdom is earthly and sensual, it's wisdom that you can see with your eyes, you can taste, you can touch, you can feel. It's of the five senses that anybody who is worldly can understand that. It doesn't take any revelation to see how you can use envy to manipulate people. You don't have to have a word from God. You don't have to have some deep insight. You don't have to have revelation or a profound biblical understanding. You can pick up this, you can pick up this wisdom down at the local porn shop or the bar or, or the, you know, some dirty hangout. That's, you can pick that wisdom up right there. You don't have to have the Holy Spirit reveal it to you. That's the type of wisdom we're talking about. And this wisdom compares and it has, and because it has envy and it wishes it has this and has that. And the devil knows that he gets people to envy people. He can start controlling them with it. Amen. Who is the author of that? How many of you know that the first envier was Satan, or Lucifer envied God. See, it is at the core of every evil work. Let's go back to Isaiah, the 14th chapter, which we, we often look at this because it's so revealing and it's so telling of our culture when you look at this verse of Scripture. And we've read it a million times, but I'll read it again. Isaiah 14, 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Son of the morning, how art thou cut down uh, to the ground which did weaken the nations? Now, we're going to realize how wicked envy really is. We need to understand just how wicked it really is. For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll be like the most high. 
yet thou shalt be brought down to hell for the sides of the pit, God says. See, he's envying God's position of creator of the universe, sitting on the mount of the congregation, sitting in his throne. He, that just reeks of envy and wanting to have God's place. Can I get an amen? I mean, that's pretty obvious. I mean, you don't have to be a deep thinker to, to understand that in his heart he wants to ascend. He wants the throne. He wants to be above. He wants to, you know, but he'll be brought down, the Bible says. How many of you know the angels fell because of envy? But I'm going to take you a step further. How many of you know mankind fell because of envy? Let's go to Genesis, the third chapter. We have that little conversation between Eve and the devil here, right? Right here in Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any of the beasts of the field. Now remember that serpent, that serpent is Lucifer, the one who said he wanted to ascend above God. And how he knew it ruined his life. Now he's going to throw this on Adam and Eve. It was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. Now that's truth. Now here comes the lie. Verse 4. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day they eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods. Knowing good and evil. Now, do you think he would throw out a temptation that she wouldn't want? Or do you think she wants to be his God? He's making her envy like God is better than you. God doesn't want you to be on his level. And God's lying to you and keeping you from being on his level. You're a, you're a subordinate. You're an inferior. You're below God. But if you'll do what I say, you can be just as big or maybe even better than God. Can you see envy all over that? He's using envy to manipulate. Envy is used to manipulate all the time in this world. And see, that serpent ruined Adam and Eve through envy. And you know what the sad thing was? They were already made in God's image. See, we think a lot of times, you know, we're envying other people. We want to be this, we want to be that, so we can be accepted and we can be loved. But we're already loved. We're already his workmanship. We're already complete in him. We're already everything the Bible says that we are, regardless of whether we're trying to be like somebody else or not. Can I get an amen? We are the accepted into the beloved. We are his workmanship. We are everything that we need to be. But the devil will make you feel like you're really not and you need to compromise to become, that you're really not the image of God. You, 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 know, you need to do this. And how many of you know that Adam and Eve had a calling and envy ruined, ruined it? And their calling was to be the image of God. See, if they would have followed their calling, if they would have known the hope of their calling, that they are going to be the image of God, they're going to reproduce and procreate. God created something after his own image. When they have children, they're going to create something after their own image. They're going to reflect God in every way. And that they had the hope in their calling of who they were, they were the image of God, then they wouldn't have been hoodwinked into thinking they're not the image of God, if they would have known their calling, the hope of their calling, and instead of thinking that they really don't have, they began to envy. So, as you can see, when you don't know the hope of your calling, God's calling was for them to reflect himself, and they didn't understand that, and so they fell into envy. Okay, so the results of Lucifer, uh, the devil falls, and uh, a third of the angels fall, and these things happen in church splits. Some people get envious of the pastor. Some people get envious of someone who, who has uh, some type of favor in the church. Or, or some people get envious of somebody else who they think the pastor is showing more favor towards. And I know a guy who, he, he really got to be a really close friend and close-knit group of about 20 people in his church. He had a church of about 200, and there's about 20, 30, maybe even closer to 40 core people 
and he became very close with them. And, and they teach us in Bible school that remain the pastor, don't become the buddy. It ruins the relationship. How many of you know you need to stay your, parent, your kids' parents and not be their friends? I mean, and you'll be their best friend when you parent them. I said, you'll be their best friend when you parent them. And, and so a pastor is their best friend when he pastors them, not buddies up with them. And what happened is he became very close with these people. Go out to eat with them all the time. Showed a lot of favor to them because they were the leaders in the church. Then a whole new group of younger people came in that he decided he was going to sow into them. He was going to pour himself into some of these younger people. And the older ones who had been there longer became very insanely jealous. And they rose up against this pastor. And they all left. And they've done everything they can since to try to ruin his ministry. And they almost have. See, because of envy. They envied these younger people because he wanted to sow some things into some other people's lives. And he realized he'd probably gotten too, I call it the spirit of familiarity. How many of you know what the spirit of familiarity is? You know, mom and dad, if mom and dad say, well, that's just stupid old mom and dad. <laughs> it's mom and dad. <laughs> but if the neighbor said it, then, then your kids look at it like, yeah, Mr. So-and-so says this. Yeah, I've been telling you that for 10 years. But see, what happens is familiarity sets in. Churches get ruined. People's lives get ruined. And that wisdom that is of the devil comes in, and it begins to create envy and strife, and every type of evil breaks out. Envy is bad because envy is the root sin for murder. You say, where is that, Pastor Bill? Well, it says in James that where there's envy and strife, there's every evil work. Turn with me to Romans 1, 28 and 32, to 32. Envy is the root sin for murder. How many of you know not all murder is physical? Some of it's with the tongue. It says, he that hateth his brother is a murderer. How many of you know it says that in John 3? He that hateth his brother is a murderer. How many of you know that it's one thing? It says, if you, in Proverbs, it says, you can rob from your neighbor. But boy, if you get into adultery with his wife, it says, there's no hope for you. His wrath will not be able to be appeased. You get into jealousy and envy, those are two of the most wicked sins that destroys people's lives. That's how most murders happen, is as a result of those two sins. And why, and why do I know that? Because common sense, you can see it, but also the Bible teaches that. So Romans 1.28, we're going to find out how wicked envy really is. All right. Romans 1.28. It says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. That's why I do not believe in total depravity, because the five places where reprobate is used in the New Testament, only one of them tells you how it happens, and it's when people don't want to retain God in their knowledge that God turns them over to a reprobate mind. Depravity is something that you move into because you have a sin nature. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy and murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God. So we can see there that those two things are together. Now, look at this. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Let's go, go over there quickly. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, and murders. Those two are always linked side by side. How many of you know when Cain killed Abel, he was jealous and he was envious because God accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain? And because of that envy, the first murder committed in the human race was when Cain killed Abel. And why did he do it? Because of envy. Do you know the Bible tells us why they killed Jesus? Turn with me to Matthew 27, 18. We're going to find out why, did they, why really did they kill Jesus. What was the real reason why they killed Jesus? 
Matthew 27, 18. We'll just begin there in verse 17. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will I ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called the Christ? For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. They delivered him up to be crucified. Well, let's go to another place, Mark 15, 20. We're talking about comparison tonight, how wicked it is. And I, must, I mistranscribed. But in, in the book of Mark, it says that they killed him for envy. For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. But they all delivered him up to, to be put to death. Another place it says it even more clear, and I don't, have that, I don't have that reference, I don't think. But envy, Lucifer envied God, split heaven. Eve envied God and uh, split God and man. Cain envied Abel and split the family. Envy always divides and destroys. The Bible says there will even be ministers that for the, they, they minister for the express purpose because they're, they're full of envy. Turn with me to Philippians 1, 15 and 16. A lot of people do things for envy. How many of you know if you do it for envy, you'll find out at the end of your life that you didn't fulfill God's will for your life if you're driven by envy. A lot of people, they choose their careers based on envy. They, they choose where they want to live based on envy. They choose how they do things because they envy because they're comparing themselves with other people around them. And because of that, uh, you'll miss God's plan for your life. Philippians 1.15. All right, let's look at that. Some indeed preach Christ even for envy or envy and strife. Some preach the gospel because of envy. Now that's extreme. And some are doing it because they, they, they just simply, they want that position. They want some type of position of authority, and it's, and it's a very unhealthy thing. So what can I do? So how do we keep from falling into that? The hope of your calling changes everything. See, when you disconnect from God, your point of reference is, okay, how well am I doing among my peers? How well am I doing in comparison to so-and-so? How many of you know that it's easy to start making points of references to judge your success? And everybody tends to want to do that. But if you do that, you, you can fall into envying, because if you find somebody that's doing better, and then it starts bothering you, and then you start wishing that you had that, and you covet what they have, you envy who they are, you, you, you begin to fall into that, it, it, it can completely overtake you. So what can we do? We need to pray to know the hope of our callings. How many of you know, feel like you know the call on your life? Raise your hand quickly if you feel like you know the call on your lives. Okay. I believe this, that once you know the call on your life, it's going to be real hard for the devil to tempt you. Okay. I believe this. If you don't know the call in your life, you need to know that God loves you. 1 John 4, 18, it says, perfect love casts out all fear. If you are doing something and uh, you have a perfect knowledge of God, that God's love is perfect, that even if you aren't everything that you're supposed to be, even if you aren't measuring up in some way, God's love will cast out all fear. We don't have to measure up to be uh, accepted or loved by God. We just have to be in faith that God loves us. Amen? So one of the things that we do to stay out of envy is we know the depths, the heights, and the breadth of God's love. And that love that dwells in us, that strengthens us in our inward man. Paul talks about that, that when we know his love, we'll be strengthened in the inward man. We'll, we'll have a, a confidence about ourselves that we won't look at other people. And we won't compare ourselves to other people. And when we look to Jesus as the one who is develop, who's developing us. Now, number two, if we know his plans, that they're for good and not for evil, that God has plans for us in our calling. It's good. You know, I, when people, one person said this, uh, some people that 
I know, and talked to me, and said, we, we never would have gone into ministry because we thought God was going to send us off to the mission field and make us do stuff that we hated the rest of our lives. How many have heard of people who think like that? They're afraid that God's going to make them do something that they don't want to do. Well, God will make you do hard things. But those hard things will make you feel better about yourself and will make you happier than you were if you didn't do the hard things. How many of you know the Bible says, he who lacks discipline despises himself? Let me say it again. He who lacks discipline despises himself. Discipline is where we get the word disciple. Disciples start having high, very high self-esteem. A disciplined one will have great satisfaction. How many of you know this life isn't about fun? It's about satisfaction. Satisfaction of being in God's will, doing God's plan, and knowing his calling and being sure that you're doing it. Amen. So his plan for us is good and not for evil. God isn't going to have you do something that you're not designed for or that you'll hate the rest of your life. God will have you do something that may be hard, but in the end, in the end analysis, you'll have done great things and you'll have blessed a lot of people. Number, number three, know that you are his workmanship created for good works. That if you have a tendency to want to do something, know that you were created to do that. You're his workmanship, and your good works is your calling. Somebody say amen. You are his workmanship. Now, before we're saved and we're, we're not in Christ, we really aren't totally his workmanship. We're kind of his workmanship that, you know, in a fallen nature and isn't exactly. But then when we're redeemed and brought back into, into Christ, then we are his workmanship. Adam and Eve were his workmanship, but then they followed Satan, and they kind of became his workmanship. Do you all understand what I'm saying? You know, we all say, well, he's a real piece of work. <laughs> you know, Satan made some people a real piece of work. But how many of you know that can be redeemed and we can be God's workmanship again? Amen. You're his workmanship and you're created for good work. There's something, that, the desires of your heart, what you like doing, what you want to do, is going to bring you ultimate satisfaction if you follow after your calling. And your calling, uh, you're going to want to do it. It's good. And, you know, I find my calling to be really hard at times. Sometimes it's really hard to get sermons ready. Sometimes it's really hard uh, to do, do things and have to tell people certain things and counsel people in certain ways. Sometimes it's really hard uh, to be the leader when you just want to relax and say, you know, it'd be nice just to kick up your feet and not have to be the leader. Or, and, and, you know, there, but, you know, I couldn't, get any, I couldn't get satisfaction any other way. Just because your life may be hard doesn't mean that you hate it. It just means that you're having to deal with yourself and your flesh. Somebody say amen. You, you should have to do things that are hard, and you should have to discipline yourself because God is growing all of us up. God is developing all of us in our calling. If you're in your calling, if you're in the hope of your calling, you will become very confident in who you are because it's not what you do. It's how well you do it and who you're doing it for and why you're doing it. It's not what you do that gives you self-esteem. It's who you're doing it for, how well you're doing it, and why you're doing it gives you self-esteem. Somebody say amen. So, and, and poor self-esteem comes from a lack of discipline. Lack of discipline will destroy your self-esteem. So when, when you have good self-esteem, you don't, you don't compare yourself to other people. You just want to be like Jesus and you want to become more like Jesus all the time. And so envying can be put under by keeping your, your, your eye on the prize and forgetting those things behind and staying on track with what God's called you to do and knowing the hope of your calling. How many of you want to know the hope of your calling or have maybe a better understanding? You know, I pray for God. I pray that prayer all the time. God, give me a better understanding of my calling. Give me a better understanding of my calling. I want to know my, because, you know, sometimes callings aren't just real simple. Some callings are a little bit more, there's a little bit more to them than just something real simple. You know, you may be called, like, to, to a job for, you know, 40 years, and then in your retirement, God may call you to something completely different. How many of you believe that tonight? I believe God calls people to different things. I believe that God calls us, and there's glory to glory, faith to faith. I believe there's stages and there's levels. You know, you can see where some people, you know, they were, in the pastor for years and then they went on later and they kind of were in a bible school or they kind of were in a prophetic ministry like brother Hagen, he pastored for a lot of years but then god called him and it was all part of his calling he couldn't have gone around the country and preached and taught 
thousands of pastors if he hadn't pastored for 20 years or whatever. See, that was all part of his calling. Your calling may be you're working this job and maybe you don't particularly like this job right now, but this job is getting you ready for the next stage of your calling. Somebody say amen. So be open to it. Don't, don't think you've missed it just because it's hard or you don't like it every day. Uh, but if it's basically the types of thing that you, you want to do, then God puts that in you, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be hard from time to time. So the calling, if you'll walk in it, God will develop you. Let's all stand up. We're going to be dismissed. Father, I just thank you that you've given us a hope of the calling you've put on our lives. Father, I, I believe that calling is first to be a child of God. A calling means invitation. To be a child of God, to be born again, and to follow you. Secondly, it's our vocation. Our calling is our vocation, what we do. Father, I pray that you would just open our eyes to every aspect of our calling. Father, that in that season of our life, or maybe we've done it, but maybe you're calling us to be the one to teach it to others now. Maybe that calling is changing. Maybe that calling has a stage two or a stage three to it. And Father, maybe that calling, maybe we're being prepared for a, for a change. Or may, but Father, whatever, it gives hope because you always have something new. You've always got something better. And you've always got something that's taking us home to the ultimate destination where you want us for eternity. And Father, when we understand that, then the world is not a temptation. Other people's lives are not a temptation to want to be like. Other people's things are not an envy uh, that I want to have. All I want is you, Lord. All I want is your plans, Lord. All I want is to fulfill the call that you've designed for me, Lord. So, Father, we pray that tonight. Now, if, if that's you and you want to know more, just raise your hand and say this. I believe that I receive tonight a greater hope, a greater understanding, a greater specificity of the call on my life. And Father, I thank you that it gives me hope. It gives me a knowing inside that you have plans for me. And I receive them now in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Praise God.